Welcome to the Seamland Podcast. I'm your host, Seamland. Today, our guest is Dr. James Antonio, with who we wrote our next book together with The Obesity Fix. You can get The Obesity Fix from Amazon. This episode is brought to you by Blue Blocks, my favorite light and sleep optimization companies. Artificial light at night exposure is associated with diabetes, obesity, heart disease, cancer, and Alzheimer's. Blue Blocks provides the highest quality blue blocking glasses that filter out the specific wavelengths that have been shown to suppress melatonin in studies. Melatonin is more than the sleep hormone. It's also vital for longevity, anti-aging, and immunity. Artificial light exposure suppresses melatonin up to 99% and makes your brain think that it's daytime before bed. That's why I love using Blue Blocks to guarantee my body is making high amounts of melatonin prior to sleep. They also have daytime lenses that you can use to reduce digital eye strain and retinal damage when working in front of a computer all day. You can get a sweet 15% discount of all the Blue Blocks glasses, red light light bulbs, red light devices and sleep masks if you head over to blueblocks.com forward slash seamlund and use the code seam15. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X dot com forward slash seamlund and the code is seam15, S-I-I-M 15. James, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on, Seam. Yeah, so uh, another podcast, another book. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like, I think this what's our fourth book together that we wrote, uh, The Obesity Fix. And uh, yeah, I mean, the title is pretty self-explanatory about obesity and losing weight. So um, yeah, maybe let's start with, you know, uh, because I mean, most people have heard about like that there's the obesity epidemic, that there's many people who are overweight, but what's the actual, like, I don't know, statistics and what's the actual situation right now? Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, everybody gets that, you know, nowadays, most people are like overweight rather than being fat. So like about two thirds of US adults are either overweight or obese, um, which is obese is essentially a BMI of 30 or higher. But I think the real, the real reason and compelling reason why we wanted to write this book is because there's sort of like a debate between, okay, do you just want to be in caloric restriction to lose weight? Or is it all about just like quality of food? And like this book is sort of blends both ideas together and, and in fact says actually both are important. And I think we did a pretty good job in sort of summarizing the data on that. Mm. Yeah, 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 I agree that, uh, yeah, I think there are like two, two echo chambers. One is the kind of uh, calories in, calories out. And the other one is um, the, uh, I don't know, like, you know, that you only need to focus on the whole foods or you exclude carbs or ex- certain foods, etc. cetera. Uh, I mean, both have like some, good let's say ideas and both are you know have things right but there's also things that are you know missing in the context and uh, maybe like in my opinion they've always like just talked past each other like they they actually like you know agree on some of the principles etc but they you know one side doesn't uh, listen to the other and uh, vice versa and there's this like yeah echo echo chambers and um, a lot of confusion for the average person who is you know not in like the social media sphere of you know, looking at influencers or talking about that, it's like the actual regular person who just, you know, wants to improve their health and wants to lose weight. So they're kind of, you know, confused of, you know, what am I going to do? And actually they just end up not doing anything because of that. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, bo- both sides are correct. Like one side sort of gives the the how, how to get to a calorie deficit in, in the correct way and talks about hormones and talks about metabolism and intricacies. And the other side just hyper-focuses on calorie deficit, no matter what, even if you just eat M&Ms, as long as you're in a calorie deficit, you'll lose weight. And so um, ultimately, though, we want people to be healthy. We want it to a healthy, sustainable weight loss. And really, that's what the obesity fix is about. Like basically, 
So you're not hungry all the time. You're nourishing the body with nutrient dense foods and you're supporting muscle growth at the same time, which basically is effortless fat loss. Once you have more muscle because mm. muscle burns more fat. Um, and so, you know, we lay out pretty easily the strategies, the foods, the macro ratios to do to, to lead to effortless weight loss. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to maybe touch on this point one, one more time is that, you know, uh, yeah, I, I think, yeah, like when, when it comes to like the colors in versus colors out, uh, people then, uh, they do like, I think they've just emphasized the point that yes, you can lose weight eating MMNs and yes, you can lose weight eating like pop tarts only. It's not the ideal way. I think they acknowledge that as well. And, uh, and, uh, they don't recommend it, although they would maybe say that, you know, you can have it in moderation, et cetera, and fit it into your macros essentially, which, which. I think the other side then listens, okay, you need to only eat M&Ms or whatever. So again, again, this kind of miscommunication, et cetera. But yeah, like either side is, you know, just um, uh, tr trying to achieve the same goal in different ways, because ultimately, yeah, like calorie deficit is what matters. Um, but, you know, there's different ways to achieve that, different foods that achieve that. And, you know, yeah, like although calorie restriction and losing weight will improve all your biomarkers, uh, you know, almost all, all of them, um, you know, some of the kind of, methods of uh, reaching that may be better or more suitable, more, maybe more sustainable as well. Right. I think the big piece that um, sort of the calorie in calorie out model is missing is the fact that everything ultimately in the body is somehow controlled by hormones, right? Like your hunger is controlled by hunger hormones and satiety hormones. Um, muscle growth is controlled by hormones to an extent. So to not recognize that fat loss and fat burning is also controlled by hormones like insulin, like leptin, things like that, that side doesn't usually acknowledge, right? It's all just about a calorie deficit. Well, that's not necessarily true, right? Because we know that just giving certain supplements without altering anyone's caloric intake, giving berberine, right? Giving spirulina, giving astaxanthin can literally increase fat burning because you're altering hormones, you're epigenetically turning on certain um, enzymes, right? AMPK. So you can hack certain foods that are higher in certain nutrients um, to improve hormonal, uh, you know, hormonal effects, sensitivities, thyroid hormone, and you can get more fat burning per set amount of calories consumed. So I tell people all the time, like if someone is overeating, bad foods and they've gained weight, they can still eat the same amount of calories, but if they switch to from all processed foods to hundred percent whole foods, even though they're eating the same amount of calories, they can absolutely lose fat and, and lose weight doing that um, without changing calories at all. And we know this because there's been studies that have directly compared certain um, food substances, like even sugar compared to starch in even match for calories, sugar leads to more uh, increases in insulin, both fasting and um, after an oral glucose tolerance test. So literally just like changing components of your diet without changing calories at all can actually lead to a lot of weight loss. And we give one example in the book, and this is like a really good one. It was a four week study and they didn't change calories intake. There was no significant difference, but what they did was they changed people from eating things like butter, heavy cream, full fat dairy, full fat milk to avocados, nuts, and olive oil. There was no significant decrease in calories, 
but yet there was this significant six pound fat loss in just four weeks, simply switching the foods that you eat. Now we did calculate that there was a numerical slightly decreased intake of calories when they did that. And even when we took that into account, only 22% of the weight loss could actually be accounted for by caloric changes or a lower caloric intake. In other words, 78% of the weight and fat loss was simply due to the different foods that the people selected. So in other words, that study sort of proved that it's not just about the change in calories. It's actually also about the change in the quality of the foods that you eat more so than actually the change in caloric intake. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, it has an effect, um, but at the same time, it doesn't mean that, you know, you can't uh, gain weight by eating the, you know, the right foods. Like you can still gain weight by eating whole foods. Um, if you like just essentially overeat, like you can gain weight eating too much meat, you can gain weight too much, um, any kinds of, you know, mostly like, you know, even like nuts and seeds, you can easily overeat uh, oils, you know, cheese, uh, eggs, fish. I mean, yeah, you can easily gain, you know, gain weight by doing that, by being in a calorie surplus. So it's, it's mostly that, you know, these whole foods uh, will, uh, or the right foods will essentially help you to, you know, structure or rewire your satiety and uh, satiety mechanisms in a way that you end up actually not overeating if you, if you have your uh, satiety and hunger signaling working properly. It's kind of, yeah, like the automatic, you know, in the real world, when people aren't counting their calories, they have to rely on this, you know, intuition and uh, satiety signals. And for that, like the whole foods generally that have, don't, don't have like a ton of added sugars and processing, then those generally will lead to higher satiety and uh, lower overall uh, calorie intake because of that. Yeah. Like we sort of need to think of hunger. Uh, just like we think of thirst, it's controlled by the body as long as you're consuming whole foods and you're not messing up your satiety signals when you consume processed foods. So it's true that, like you said, if you consume a low amount of calories from pure junk food, that you can lose weight initially. However, I don't believe that you could consume that for years and not metabolically damage the body and basically mess up your satiety signals. I guarantee you eventually, even if you're under eating calories, you will lead to insulin resistance and leptin resistance, and you will overeat because your satiety signals are messed up. Um, and here, here's what's really interesting. Even if you do overeat whole foods, you're then going to get the signal to eat less later on, whereas you might not if you overeat hyperpalatable foods, right? So that, that sort of gets lost in translation as well, is the fact that the whole foods allow you on a, not even thinking about it on a subconscious level to not overeat because you're going to get the satiety signals. And we've seen, this has been proven in numerous metabolic ward studies and numerous overfeeding studies that if you overfeed people, even thousands of calories more, you don't see nearly the amount of waking that you should based on how much more they're eating in calories. And that's because you get what's called adaptive thermogenesis when you either decrease or increase caloric intake above maintenance. In other words, if you eat more calories than you need to maintain your weight, if it's real whole foods, you will get an increase in something called non-exercise um, activity thermogenesis. Essentially, you just start moving without even realizing it more, fidgeting, walking, um, and your basal metabolism goes up too. So the, the calories in calories out model misses the fact that calories in is directly linked to calories out. In other words, the more you eat, the more you naturally start moving 
if you're not over consuming the highly processed foods and messing up those signals. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That's gone through. And the, um, I'll mention that more the, um, on the ultra processed foods, then, uh, people gen generally tend to eat up to like 500 to 700 more calories per day, uh, because of the, uh, higher satiety or higher uh, palatability and, uh, all also because the processed foods generally are just more packed with calories, like added oils and added sugars and other calories. Uh, that just increase the total calorie content of that meal and uh, i mean there yeah, are even like healthy foods quote unquote like you know like a caesar salad can be like you know quite high in calories if it has like all this dressing and such uh, whereas people you consider salad as you know like a diet food but if it's you know wrenched or drenched in like uh, ranch and uh, oils then it's still you know high in calories and considered like you know processed food yeah i mean the, the, the real key is too is like you take the same person and they're eating the same amount of calories if that person though has higher insulin levels and has lower thyroid hormone, even though they're eating the same calories, who do you think is going to gain more weight? Of course, the person who has high insulin levels and who has low thyroid hormone. So to not think that horm hormones control hunger and fat loss um, is incorrect. And we know that the different types of foods alternatively affect those functions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll be, maybe I'll mention that, you know, we're not like necessarily being like, you know, that low carb is better or high carb is better, et cetera. We're kind of, yeah, like that the food quality does matter and uh, both diets can, or, you know, both high carb and low carb in studies at least find that they both work and they're equal, that it doesn't matter. Like if it's, you know, higher carb or lower carb, as long as the calories are equal, et cetera. But, it, you know, you need to see like this uh, improvement in the metabolic health that is achieved by just swapping the processed foods more towards the whole foods that uh, then generally improve the person's metabolic health and then allow these uh, the balancing act of these hormones and uh, the satiety signals to take place uh, which otherwise wouldn't uh, occur right and then we also need to understand too that a lot of a lot of times even these metabolic ward studies that are controlling and giving people a set amount of food don't necessarily translate to the real world right like it's like, you got to find out what works best for you. Some people may get good satiety on a low carb, um, moderate fat, high protein diet. And other people, they might need a more fibrous, high carb fruits and vegetable diet. Um, so it's like, and, and I tend to see, you know, more of like the men who are lifting weights, they gravitate a little bit more towards a higher meat, higher egg consumption to support that muscle mass. Whereas people with a lower muscle mass tend to sort of eat a little bit less protein and eat a little bit more, you know, whole food carbs. So it's sort of like, you got to kind of eat to what your body is more, you know, adept to. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Like adherence is the biggest or the most important thing. And if for you, like adherence is like a Snickers bar in the evening, then go for it. Like if it helps you to stick to the diet, then it's, I mean, I don't think that there's anything particularly wrong about that if it's, you know, if it if it you know scratches that specific itch that you need as long as it doesn't turn into like you know six stinkers bars or whatever you know yeah i mean that's a big that's a big thing and it's probably the second main reason why people struggle with weight loss the first is not consuming enough protein the second is snacking or eating junk food at night and they, they just overeat at night because they get the sugar cravings and the food cravings and so we go over uh, strategies on how to combat those sugar cravings, but sometimes your body literally is just craving the glucose. And so if you can find healthy fruits, berries, 
um, a little bit of mango, whatever, to sort of curb that sugar craving where you're not just eating like a half a pint of ice cream at night. then yeah. that's going to work for you because it's cutting off the second primary reason that people really over, you know, eat and, and over consume and gain fat is the late night snacking on hyper palatable foods. Mm, yeah. Like the, it's very common, maybe like to, they, they're very good at, they can be very good at uh, restricting themselves and avoiding all these uh, palatable foods during daytime. But in the evening, when um, their motivation or willpower has uh, waned away, then they just, you know, break and uh, they go off the rails. So it's a very kind of slippery slope. So it, I think it's easy or it's, yeah, it's very important to also like make the diet so or structure the diet so that you don't have to exert a lot of willpower. Because if you're always like, you know, I'm finding myself to not eat the cookie or whatever, then it's uh, going to be hard because eventually you will break, you know. Right. Unless you yeah. have like super willpower or, you know. Well, that's that's the main thing, right? Is like what what works and then what are the alternatives too? So we like in the book, we, we sort of have a plate and we sort of say like, it's a little bit more than half, but about half the plate is veg, like, a third of it is meat, essentially, or animal foods. And then you have more of like your a third, like starch, right? Like sweet potatoes, things like that. And then like a piece of fruit for dessert. Now, if you don't tolerate veg, we, we add, you know, the reason why we put veg in there, like broccoli, peppers, onions, things like that is low calorie, very filling initially. It gives you the initial satiety, whereas the protein and fats give you the long-term satiety. So when you pair both, you know, fruits and vegetables with high protein and healthy animal fats, you get both the quick satiety and the long-term satiety, which is like the magic bullet for weight loss. Yeah. But if you don't tolerate, we, we, we do state that if you don't tolerate veg, then you can fill it up with a little more animal foods if you want. So it's sort of like just, you know, here's, here's what will work for probably the majority of people. We, we showed that plate, but then you can alter it based on your, you know, preference. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So true. Like, you know, a lot of, you know, fiber, it, um, it can very, it can be very like, you know, uh, satiating or it's uh, just, you know, very small amount of calories compared to, let's say, you know, I don't know, some sort of uh, oils and such um, that is very like calorie dense, but you can't, you know, barely, you, you barely even see the amount of it. Whereas, you know, the same amount of calories from vegetables would be like, you know, an entire handful, etc. So, right. Yeah, and it, yeah, it does. the other key too that a lot of people uh, sort of this is another reason why people struggle with weight loss is too many added fat bombs. Like mm -hmm. that's sort of like the keto movement. It worked, but then a lot of people saw weight loss stalls or even gained weight because they just started dumping too much heavy cream in their coffee. They started using butter, like a half a stick of butter, like bulletproof coffee. And that's not what you want to do, right? Because like just added fats are not very satiating. Um, a little bit of heavy cream in coffee. Yeah, that that's great. But like, you got to really be careful about how much added fats you use because it does quickly add to your caloric intake. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but maybe let's uh, talk a little bit more about, um, you know, what caused or what is, you know, what is the reason why people are generally overweight nowadays um, what's what is the main uh, like timeline that we outlined in the book yeah we outlined essentially from 1970 you started seeing the rise in obesity to really hit a peak at about 2000 2002 you had a, you had essentially a tripling in the obesity rate in us adults and everyone didn't just decide to start eating more calories in 1970 right or stop decided to not exercise anymore 
So we sort of go through a lot of different food items and changes that likely led to the obesity uh, epidemic in the United States. Number one, undoubtedly, is sugar, particularly in liquid form. So essentially, we went from like consuming just 10 gallons of soft drinks um, in the 1970s to basically 55 gallons of, of soft drinks per year per person. So there was like a, a huge increase in the intake in soft drinks. And, and because of that, there was a large increase in sugar intake. Like we only used to consume like two to three pounds of sugar per person per year, a couple hundred years ago. And now, well, in 2000, the average intake was about 152 pounds of sugar per mm. person per year. So to not think that eating an extra 150 pounds of sugar uh, per year per person didn't drive the obesity epidemic, I think is missing a big piece of the puzzle. Now, the, key, the thing is, is that people don't just eat really spoonfuls of sugar. They do dump a lot of sugar in coffee or Starbucks. They get a lot of these added sugars without even realizing it. And that's one of the big drivers. The second driver was... The invention of the steel roller mill in the late 1800s, basically pulverizing uh, flour into this fine powder. And we now, in, in 2000, the statistics were the worst in, in 2002, where we consume about 200 pounds of flour and grains and things like that per person per year, when it used to be basically nothing. So here you have 350 pounds of sugar and refined flours that we never consumed. And we're consuming that now on a yearly basis. So those two are probably one of the main drivers and, and, it, and it's packaged with all these added fats now too. So you write your processed pizzas um, and all these hyper palatable foods is really where we're getting a lot of the refined carbs and sugars and, and then the seed oils too, the omega-6 seed oils, which started in 1911 with Crisco and cottonseed oil as a replacement for butter. We basically went from not consuming any seed oils to consuming you know, probably 40 to 50 pounds of soybean oil by 1980. So here you have essentially 400 pounds of foods every year that we've never consumed in the, in the forms of refined sugars, refined flours, and seed oils. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's what around the seventies, I, I would imagine where the, a lot of the, uh, let's say eating out and uh, fast food and uh, TV dinners and those kind of things also started to take off like before that people you know only ate at home um, or very rarely ate out uh, out and uh, they didn't have like all these packaged foods uh, which nowadays you know they're full of all these ingredients as you said like sugar and uh, oils and uh, flour etc like you just literally flip any kind of package and you see all these ingredients there and uh, when you compare you know let's say i don't know let's take like a some sort of a pasta bolognese tv dinner uh, and you compare it to homemade, then you could, then you would see like a huge uh, calorie difference as well uh, per, let's say, serving. And uh, yeah, and a lot of it is because of the you know, added oils and added sugar, which I don't, I'm not sure even like why they add it. Like it's probably like some sort of preservation or taste preference uh, to make it more palatable and uh, encourage overeating. Exactly. They, they add it strictly because it's cheap and it causes people to eat more of that food. And so it just it's basically just profit margins to go up when you add a little bit of sugar to the food. There was a fourth change though, in the food system in the 1940s that we, many people thought it would be beneficial, but it actually led and drove the obesity epidemic. And I'll explain because what ended up happening is you have all of this refined 
flour, and sugar, okay? But farmers have known for over 100 years, if you feed farm animals just refined grains, they end up becoming so sick and they, their appetites go away and they don't end up basically fattening up. So what they figured out is if they simply add B vitamins to their refined grains, the cow's appetite would return. Their illnesses like dyspepsia, upset stomach, um, anorexia would go away and they would, become, they would become very fat very quickly. And that experiment is essentially being played on us now. So in the 1940s, the American Bakers Association lobbied and the FDA tried to block this, but the FDA has no control over nutrients, only pharmaceuticals. So they couldn't block this from happening. But essentially, we now have fortified grains. And you might say, well, geez, adding B vitamins, that's a good thing, right? It's not because if we just had refined grains, we wouldn't be able to thrive and sustain our appetites on solely refined grains because we would get no nourishment and we would have to seek out our nourishment by eating whole foods. But by fortifying grains with B vitamins, it keeps us just healthy enough where we're not becoming sick, we're not losing our appetites, we're not becoming anorexic, and we're overconsuming. It allows us to overconsume refined foods. So there's a good case. We have an entire chapter in the book that literally fortifying grains with B vitamins helped drive the obesity epidemic as well. Mm. Yeah, I think that, you know, I haven't heard about uh, that before, before writing the book anywhere. And uh, yeah, I mean, the food fortification itself is, you know, quite uh, controversial. Like, you know, obviously, obviously you would imagine that adding nutrients and minerals to the food is good. But, you know, when you look at it, like even fortifying with iron, isn't always a good thing, you know, because excess iron can be harmful and it can increase the risk of heart disease. Uh, the same with iodine, like adding iodine to salt, etc. Like it has cured iodine deficiency in a lot of places, uh, but excess iodine, again, in, in some place, other places, is also like increases risk of, you know, autoimmune disorders and thyroiditis, etc. So, yeah, I think, you know, maybe like humans are thinking a very like black and white or you know kind of this linear way that i just you know, add these uh, nutrients there and it's going to be fine etc but without realizing all the complexity of the um, of the body and what you know goes on actually yeah that's a great point yeah mm. one interesting thing that we also found that you know the consumption of uh, fruits and vegetables has also increased uh, a little bit since the 70s but you know those vegetables generally come from you know corn and potatoes and such, not broccoli and cauliflower. So uh, you know obviously I think you know if I'm not mistaken, then in the U.S. potatoes are considered or categorized as like a vegetable. So like French fries are also like vegetable, right? Yeah. Well, here's the thing too. It's not that we decided to just eat like you know organic whole potatoes. We the most of the potatoes that are now consumed are like frozen and they're cooked in a ton of oil mm. and you know, butter and things like that. And so actually, if you, if you just ate, try to eat a, a full whole potato, you would become very full, right? Um, because it's got a ton of fiber, a lot of potassium, and just very voluminous. We don't just typically eat that. We're eating mashed potatoes stuffed with butter. And so, or frozen potatoes with a ton of oil added to it. And so really the, the potatoes that we get now are just basically fat and carb bombs because they're more refined than just an actual whole potato without any of that. Mm. Yeah. And that reminded me of, uh, there was this one guy in Australia, I think that ate only potatoes for one year and he lost yeah. like a bunch of weight. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the potato that is a thing, uh, 
And it's essentially based on, on this idea that, you know, you get very satiated by eating a very like a low selection of foods. Like it reaches the sensory specific satiety so that you get bored of eating. If you eat only potatoes, then it's, yeah, like, okay, I, I fulfill my calorie needs and nutrient needs and then I stop eating. Whereas if, but if you like, you can hack it, you can add like, you know, oils and salt and sugar into the potatoes and it becomes very hyper palatable and you end up overeating. So it's a very, you know, yeah, it goes back to like, you know, the whole foods generally are, the foods that that all, like auto regulate our energy intake and um, hunger levels, just because yep. they're kind of in the whole food the form. Whereas if you tinker it with uh, something, then uh, you can very easily kind of hack it and um, break the system. Yeah, yeah. What are some like um, other examples of um, I don't know like are there any like additional things that maybe causal of the rise in weight gain or are there like any hidden some sort of like people don't really know, but because like most people know that, you know, sugar and fat, too much fat and sugar or processed food generally is bad for weight loss, but is there anything like, I don't know, something that they may not know about? There are certain um, artificial sweeteners. Um, sac saccharin is one that has a, a human study. It was just a one week study, but it, within one week, the saccharin induced glucose intolerance and also messed up the gut microbiome. This was in humans, um, and as well as they, they also had a, a mouse study as well. Uh, so certain artificial sweeteners, we haven't seen this with stevia or monk fruit in humans. There's been clinical trials showing no changes in insulin or insulin resistance, but you, you definitely need to be careful with things like saccharin and aspartame and those things as well, because there are some, there's definitely animal studies, but there are some human data as well, indicating that you can induce glucose intolerance with those artificial sweeteners more rapidly than potentially even refined sugars. Hmm. And what about, what's the amount for that? Like is one can of Diet Coke uh, kind of do that though? Right, yeah, I'm not entirely sure on what the amount was, but because it was a human clinical, it obviously was uh, doable and it was probably something that, you know, could be done fairly easily. I'm pretty, you know, I'm assuming I don't recall exactly. I'd have to pull up the study. Um, mm. But yeah, it is all dose makes the poison, right? So, you know, one, like you said, Diet Coke, that's probably not a problem, but three to four every day, that probably would be an issue. Yeah. Uh, speaking of sugar and uh, sweeteners, so, um, you know, there's different types of sugars. Um, and, uh, the more like one of the more let's say harmful ones for metabolic health and uh, weight gain is uh, fructose and not the like fructose in fruit uh, but like fructose as the sweetener so you know let's Great. maybe like talk about like how is or why is fructose maybe so harmful for our weight loss and how does it do it yeah so the key here is that it's added fructose that's harmful not fructose in whole foods and people say well there's no difference between the two and that yes and no, that's somewhat true, but it's also not true because having an, a single ingredient versus having an ingredient packaged in a whole food matrix is, is going to have completely different effects on the body. And that's the key. So I'll give you an example. <clears throat> you can take a plant like a cocoa leaf or um, like a poppy seed, and you can extract a single ingredient out of those and form cocaine or form opium. And now you have an addictive substance and you can do the same thing with the sugar beet or sugar cane. You can extract sugar from it. And now you also have a potentially addictive substance because you've refined it to a point where you get a much higher release of dopamine in the brain than you would ever get with a whole food. And that what ends up happening 
is when you get a supraphysiologic release of dopamine, you then get a trough and that trough leads to an addictive pattern and cycle that that wanting of more sugar to get the high again. So it's really the highs and the lows that are caused by, you know, when you isolate a particular plant compound versus consuming from a whole food matrix. And that's the difference. So we're not talking about sugar from whole, whole fruit because that's whole fruit and that contains vitamins and minerals and fiber. We're talking about added sugars. Um, and because it's in isolation, you are getting, you don't have the antioxidants to prevent the inflammation that happens when an intestinal cell metabolizes fructose. Um, when you overconsume added fructose, it has been shown to lead to inflammation in the intestine, increased intestinal permeability in animal studies. And then now you can have things like proteins leach into the systemic circulation and cause all types of autoimmune conditions, right? People with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis and systemic um, autoimmune issues because you've damaged the lining that's supposed to be blocking exogenous substances from entering your bloodstream. So, and seed oils do this too. Seed oils damage the intestinal lining as well. And so, you know, those two in particular, refined sugars, refined carbs, and seed oils, you want to stay away from because you want to maintain a healthy gut lining. Mm, gotcha. Yeah. And the fructose will also um, be more predisposed to promote the visceral fat gain. So this kind of uh, internal fat around the organs, uh, which is more associated with insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome than the circuit sub subcutaneous fat around, under the skin. So uh, that's, I think, very, like it creates this, you know, skinny fat look that you don't appear that you're, you know, obese. Uh, you may even have like a slightly low, lower BMI, uh, but you have like this, you know, pot belly and uh, your uh, waist to hip ratio is uh, very high, which is also uh, one of the, let's say, characteristics of uh, obesity. So not necessarily being super obese, but just having like this fat around the midsection and stomach is what is actually pretty bad. Yeah, that's a good point. So overconsuming refined sugar increases intracellular cortisol levels. Um, and because it does that, it increases visceral fatking compared to subcutaneous fatking. And John Yudkin, um, who's, who's a famous author, he, he wrote Pure White and Deadly, a famous, um, basically researcher on sugar, he did it. He actually carried out experiments on the animals um, overfeeding sugar. What he found was actually the increase in cortisol occurred before an increase in insulin when you overfed rodents sugar. In other words, we might've been missing an entire piece of the pie when it comes to weight gain. We always have known stress can lead to weight gain, but through the cortisol mechanism in how sugar can actually increase cortisol levels before insulin, uh, some of the insulin resistance that may be caused by overeating sugar may actually be due to increases in um, intracellular cortisol. Mm, yeah, that's uh, super, you know, fascinating. Super. And yep. yeah, it's very, it's very, you know, I think it's, you know, even harder to, or I think the room for error is a bit smaller with a fructose thing. Like you can even gain the visceral fat uh, while being on a, not necessarily like in a calorie deficit, but even like in a calorie maintenance, let's say if you eat a ton of added fructose and sugar, then you would see like a more visceral fat gain, even, even in that scenario. Uh, whereas if you're like, you know, overeating in a calorie surplus, you would still end up getting some visceral fat regardless uh, where the, where the calories come from. Great. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's, and this is the whole piece of the puzzle that the calories in calories out advocates are missing is the fact that hormonal changes affect weight gain and, and nothing's better of an example than consuming a low amount of salt, a low amount of salt 
in at least 14 human clinical studies has been shown to increase insulin resistance, increase insulin levels, because you're activating a hormone, salt retaining hormones that lead to insulin resistance, like aldosterone, renin, angiotensin two. When you block those hormones with medications that improves insulin sensitivity, like aldosterone antagonists and um, angiotensin two receptor blockers and um, ACEs, angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors, they all improve insulin sensitivity because they're basically ramping down salt retaining hormones. Um, and we, we sort of lay out how low salt can actually lead and increase sugar addiction because it's such an essential mineral when you don't get enough of it, the brain becomes basically hyperactive and the reward center is super sensitive now because it wants the animal to seek out salt and to get a good high from it so it doesn't die of, of low salt. But now sugar and refined carbs can hijack that hyperactive dopamine reward center in the brain. So really getting a good amount of salt can help reduce um, sugar cravings, sugar addiction, potentially even addiction to other substances. This has been shown in animal studies. Like you literally drop their sodium levels or you put them on a low salt diet. Things like Adderall, cocaine actually become more addictive. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The even even in healthy humans, the low salt intake is going to cause insulin resistance. Uh, so um, at least in the short term. So yeah, it's a, I think yeah, like much from a like satiety perspective, like salt is probably more uh, important than uh, sugar. Uh, and you know, people add salt to all foods, or virtually like even desserts. So that has a huge impact on like palatability. Like uh, is 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 there, is there like you know like a, I don't know like how do you balance that uh, because apparently you know obviously like salt does also improve appetite or, or you know it makes the food tastier um, but you don't want to have like too salt low salt either so how do you find like this balance yeah exactly and the, and the balance comes from when you start eating whole foods and you start just adding unrefined salts to the food and because now you are utilizing salt to eat more of the healthy foods that you may not have consumed without the salt. So try, try to get kids to eat vegetables without salt is very difficult. And I can eat a lot more broccoli if I put salt on it. So you just gotta use salt in a smart way. But if you don't get enough salt, the body wants to consume between three and 5,000 milligrams of sodium. So if you don't get that, you may end up eating three or four bags of low salt chips to get the salt that your body is craving. Whereas if those chips just had a bunch of salt in it, maybe one bag, you would have gotten your salt fix. So a lot of people do over snack because they're actually just trying to get the salt that their body wants. So don't get it from processed foods, get it from the salt shaker. So what you basically mean is that you need to just salt to taste or... Yes, exactly. You use salt to, to eat healthier foods and, and don't allow the salt from processed foods to overdrive the consumption of those foods. Mm, yeah, I would imagine that um, your the or, the or the desire to keep eating will also come if you combine the salt with the kind of fats and sugars. So there's this you know book, the salt um, salt sugar and fat that talks about this kind of this bliss point that the processed food industry is based on, that they create this bliss point by adding specific amounts of salt, sugar, and fats to create this, I don't know, like a blissful feeling uh, because of the hyperpalatable of the food. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's why the processed food generally is going to be more harmful 
um, because of that, that you experience this bliss point that makes you want to overeat and keep eating the excess amount of calories. Yep. Yeah. Uh, what about exercise? Uh, we do talk about exercise a lot in our book. And um, yeah, are there like any specific, you know, recommendations when it comes to uh, exercise? Yeah, I think you don't have to necessarily kill yourself every single day working out. Like you don't have to work out seven days a week. But I do think three to four days a week of resistance training, two to three days of cardio, um, uh, you know, high intensity interval training, walking, especially after meals on a daily basis, getting 10,000 to 15,000 steps a day is going to really help because um, walking is something that we're built to do really well. And we can actually burn a good amount of calories if we walk fairly um, good distances. And you don't see a huge increase in like hunger after a walk per se, and it can help like decrease blood glucose spikes as well. So really the building of the muscle though, um, and increasing your basal metabolic rate is going to have the greatest benefit of fat burning without doing anything. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, you just, you know, expend more calories to maintain the muscle tissue. Uh, whereas with fat, it's, you know, quite actually low, low maintenance to maintain the fat. Um, but I think it's, I think it's like maybe worthwhile mentioning that, you know, yeah, the um, bigger people, let's say heavier people with more body fat, their metabolic rates may also be actually higher because of that. Uh, or they're not necessarily like super low uh, metabolic rate, because I mean, if you have to maintain, let's say 300 pounds or 400 pounds of body weight, then it, your metabolic rate just by virtue of having that much mass will also be elevated. It's just that, you know, in order to, if you lose weight then your your metabolic rate will also decrease just by virtue of that you're carrying less body weight and um, that's why you need to you know there needs to be some uh, gradual decrease in your calorie intake as well as you approach lower levels of body weight or right. normal levels of body weight not you know low but you know as you become more normal in your body weight and the muscle mass does uh, let's say it can uh, compensate for that decrease by just increasing your lean muscle mass uh, but you know, eventually, if you become like, let's say, around the lower as so of body fat, you know, let's say, or fifteen percent body fat, ten percent body fat, then you still, you know, chances are you still need to be eating less calories, even if you have like more muscle. Although the muscle mass will be beneficial for maintaining that metabolic rate while, while without doing like anything, without exercising necessarily, just you know, having this extra energy, basically, consumer that uh, consumes a lot of calories. Right. And I think that the other key to building muscle too, is you're automatically going to start eating more protein to fuel that muscle. And we talk about the differences in the macros between fats, carbs, and protein, right? Protein and carbs, um, four calories per gram versus fat, nine calories per gram. And the fact that protein has a high thermic effect, meaning like 20 to 30% of the calories from protein are going to go into actually just breaking it down. So you really are, you know, when you eat protein, it's really like you're only ingesting 70 to 80% of those calories, which is why studies have compared like 30% protein versus 10% protein and people automatically consume 440 calories less. And I don't even think that was taking into account the thermic effect as well, that they actually absorb less essentially calories as well. So like it's putting you in a 500 calorie deficit without you even realizing it. Yeah, yeah. Like you can be on the same amount of calories but if the one diet is let's say 40% uh, protein versus 10% then uh, the 40% protein group is going to lose more weight just because you're burning more calories than just the protein uh, okay. so the mac macros are quite yeah important as well when it comes to weight loss and 
you know, even like the even the famous uh, Twinkie diet, uh, where the person with the where the professor ate only Twinkies and lost weight because of being in a calorie deficit. Even him, like he had like a protein shake <laughs> to still get like some protein, etc. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the protein is yeah very underrated and it's one of the I think yeah the one of the biggest leverages when it comes to uh, losing weight. Like you can you can just you know swap some of the foods that you eat for higher protein foods and uh, you would see some some results. Yep. And, and, and really adding some plant foods, if you can tolerate that, helps to offset the only, really, in my opinion, it's like one of the only harms of eating, you know, really quality protein foods is the acid load. And you see, but you can offset that by consuming uh, fruits and vegetables. So that's, yeah. that's why it, it almost like it's a perfect combo, not just from a protein fiber satiating standpoint, but also from an acid base balance standpoint. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I agree. I like, I think, yeah, like the perfect, you know, like these low carb diets, they may have some of the fundamentals right in terms of uh, the fiber and uh, protein side. But yeah, like sometimes people tend to plateau on those diets because they're like restricting their fiber intake and plant intake. They're afraid of getting kicked out of ketosis or whatever. Uh, and instead, they shoot themselves in the foot by, you know, having less fiber, but giving themselves more higher calorie, you know, foods that have more fat etc and they end up in a calorie surplus because of that so yeah like you know keto can work a lot for some people etc but you know it's still not going to be magical in the sense that you if you uh, gain or if you eat too much fat from these fat bombs or whatever oils then you're still going to gain weight and um, in my opinion at least like it's yeah much easier to just fill up on the uh, vegetables and uh, protein yep totally good um yeah i mean any other let's say final things uh, that we cover in the book that you want to mention yeah i would say the other i think sort of easy thing that people forget is just portion out your food learn to portion out your food and there's something in japan called harihachibu where they only eat until they're 80 percent full so you're full but you're not stuffed that's mm. a good rule of thumb like don't eat until you're stuffed just eat until you're satiated. That will help um, from not just the perspective of, okay, you're eating less at that point. You're not stretching out the stomach so much and getting the, the, your body so accustomed to just gorging on food all the time. That, and so your body will become accustomed to just you know, eating a, a good portion that brings you satiety, but doesn't overfill your, your body. So that's one portion control, only eating to 80% fullness. And then sleep too. We talk about sleep and how just one night of poor sleep can lead to, you know, some insulin resistance and you actually end up overeating the day after a poor night's sleep. So getting good sleep is important and that we go through some of the hacks, like most people know, turn off the lights at night, make the room cool. Um, you know, another thing is actually not getting enough salt will activate the sympathetic nervous system and is been shown to disrupt sleep. So, you know, consuming adequate amounts of salt can actually help improve sleep as well. Um, getting morning sunlight actually helps you release melatonin earlier and it gives you a greater release of melatonin. So morning sunlight can actually help you sleep better as well. And so sleep is a huge uh, issue for a lot of people, why they overeat and why they become insulin resistant and gain more fat per calorie consumed. Yeah. That's that's very true, and I mentioned on the uh, portion size as well. That um, yeah, like 
if you eat slower as well, then you will allow the food to basically reach your stomach and uh, you stop eating before, you know, instead of like gorging yourself, like you think you're hungrier than you actually are. Um, and uh, the satiety signal will just be late if you eat too fast. And I think like the way you eat as well, like if you're eating while, you know, on the computer or scrolling through your phone, then again, like you're missing out on the like sensory specific satiety or, you know, you're missing out on the entire experience. And then you, you know, again, you end up eating more than you would otherwise, like actually sitting down and enjoying the meal, maybe with like a family and friends who, whatever, like in a social setting, social setting, it's generally fine because it's like a shared experience. But if you are like in this, yeah, almost in like a sympathetic state by scrolling through the phone and watching TV, et cetera, then you don't really like recognize the reading. And that can also just lead to passively over-consuming too much food. Yeah, that's a good point. That's basically just, what you're saying too is like our food environment has changed, right? Instead of sitting down as a family, home cooked meal, actually engaging and, and being present while you eat, so your body understands like everything that you're doing while you're eating. You're like on the phone, you're ordering fast food, takeout. So yeah, being being present, slowing down, enjoying the food definitely helps too. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, I think those were only like one of the main highlights uh, or a few of the highlights that we discuss in the book. And it has a ton of information about, yeah, like the reasons why obesity happens and what to do about it. And a lot, I think at this one, this book was more like a lot more practical or, you know, um, more like this yeah, everyday life tips and hands-on uh, advice and recommendations. Yeah, because ultimately people just want to know, what should I eat? You know, and so we break down, we give 85 meals to eat. Um, we show the plate and what should be on the plate and give alternatives for if you don't like veg, here's what you can do instead. We break down the ideal percentages of macros, how much protein, which essentially, you know, one gram of protein per pound of body weight is a good, just golden rule. Um, and we give what's really important is healthy snacks. A lot of people just snack on the, on the wrong foods and that ends up, you know, leading to a lot of issues. So just figuring out a healthy snack like Greek yogurt or Icelandic yogurt with maybe some pecans and a little raw honey, just finding those healthy snacks, which we do give a good list in the book, I think is going to help a lot of people lose weight. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the book is on Amazon. So yeah, you can check it there. Yep. All right. Uh, well, it was uh, great talking with you and uh, yeah, let's uh, share share this message. Absolutely, Sim. Nice talking to you too.